0: Reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses said to the people of Israel, Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us, so that we may hear and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us, so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Romans. The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to come on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom? they have not heard, and how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him, and how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, but not all have obeyed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The word of the Lord.
1: Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. To you, Lord Christ. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. be seated. Happy Feast of St. Andrew to you all. Uh, it's maybe worth hearing a little bit about the tradition before we hear about the biblical person. Um, so the, the story of St. Andrew is that he uh, was ultimately crucified in Greece, and um, Andrew chose on the date of his martyrdom to be crucified in the Persian cross. This is the older way of crucifixion. It's shaped like the letter X. So the Roman cross we're familiar with is is an adaptation from the X. Persians have been doing this for hundreds of years ahead of Rome. That's the letter T, capital T or lowercase t. And allegedly Andrew, on the date of his death, said, you know, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner of Jesus. She put me on the Persian cross. His brother Peter, interestingly enough, also said the same. And tradition says Peter was crucified upside down, right? So if you ever see a cross upside down, especially with two keys, that's Peter. Anytime you see the X, that's Peter's brother, Andrew. Even though Andrew was uh, martyred in Greece, uh, his relics were kept by the early Christian community. And uh, tradition says they were brought to Scotland by St. Regulus sometime in the middle of the 6th century through the 10th century, very imprecise dates. The the relics were brought to a town in Scotland called Fife, which is now known as St. Andrews, and it became the center for evangelical activity in Scotland. So it was the hub of the Scottish wheel. Lots of miracles happen uh, with saints' pieces, you know, I mean, one of the miracles is in the Protestant Reformation, they burned the bones (laughs) because they they didn't regard um, relics as something Christians should pay attention to. So that was the loss of St. Andrew there. Um, uh, (laughs) If you're wondering why you can't see him, it's because that's why. There's a tradition that says that the Angles were attacking the Scots in the 9th or 10th century, and Andrew Andrew was invoked as the patron saint, and against severe odds, the Scots won, which is why Andrew became the patron saint of Scotland instead of the former saint, Columba. So if you know anything about the saints, that's the transfer in Scotland from Columba to Andrew. The X is a big deal, the X-shaped cross. It's on the Episcopal flag. I don't know if you've noticed this before. In fact, there are a number of X's. You would not find this on the seal of the Church of England. Can you see it there? It's an X made of X's. The reason for that is that when uh, Samuel Seabury, first uh, bishop of the Episcopal Church, that said, the United States, wanted to be consecrated bishop following that little rebellion that we call the war of independence he he went to england and the bishop said no uh, we will not make any of your kind bishops so he went to scotland and scotland said very well we will consecrate you bishop so long as instead of using the anglican service for the eucharist you use the scottish rite Ah, so there you heard it, Scottish Rite, and that's where the cross, the St. Andrew's Cross, came to the Episcopal Church, because Scotland would make us a bishop, and England wouldn't. <laughs> um, that's sort of the historical legacy. Now, you'll find some interesting things, like that X, right, that X-shaped cross became, for many people in Scotland, war paint, because that's the sign of Andrew, the patron saint, before going into a battle for protection, Um, You also find some lore that that sign was put above chimneys and fireplaces to prevent witches from coming in. Um, But back to the historical guy in the gospel, if that's okay. So that's the legacy of Andrew that we remember. Back to the gospel. There's two stories. The one we heard today in Matthew is one where Jesus is walking along and sees Peter and Andrew. He sees them He invites them. He says, stop doing that kind of fishing you're doing for fish, and I will make you fish for people. There's a story in John, on the other hand, it comes in the first chapter, where Andrew is already a disciple not of Jesus, but of John the Baptist. And one day, uh, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. Andrew sees him something goes off inside of andrew and one other unnamed disciple and they follow jesus and i mean literally they (coughs) follow him and jesus finally turns around and says why are you following me and 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 they say this they have this really insightful question teacher where are you staying (laughs) and he says come and see I guess they're trying to figure out if he was a member of Hilton Rewards. So they go, they go with Jesus, they spend the afternoon with him, and then Andrew goes to his brother Peter and says, I have met the Messiah, you must also come and follow him and see where he's staying. And for this reason then, Andrew becomes the first apostle. So in the Matthew story we read, Jesus sees Peter and then Andrew, In John, Andrew sees Jesus and invites Peter. So Andrew becomes, in some ways, the patron saint of invitation. And you know, he must have been a phenomenal guy because I can't get my brother to do anything I want. So so how it is he got his brother to follow a whole new way of life is really remarkable. I think actually putting these two Gospels together are interesting because there's times in my life where I have felt Christ call me, and there are other times, sure enough, where I've been looking for something new, right? I've been looking for a new way, and I wonder if those aren't, in fact, different sides of the same coin. The remarkable bit about Andrew that we get from Matthew's Gospel, and I I think what, um, for me, the invitation for us to consider this week comes back to that phrase about fishing for people. It's kind of a complicated analogy because um, forcing it into the image sort of presumes that the apostles and the people who follow Jesus are like people who use nets and hooks to catch fish. Now, you may not take these things so literally, but I just can't help but do this in my literal brain. It's almost like, uh, read this way, the analogy is sort of saying people who know Jesus are people and people who don't are like stupid fish. And our job in working for God is to catch those stupid fish (laughs) through nets and hooks, hook or crook, which are kind of painful things, I imagine, for fish, and bring them into God so that God can make stupid fish into people like me. (laughs) It's very (laughs) self-edifying. I'm really glad I'm not a fish, I'm a fisherman. Um, I worry about it for a lot of reasons, though. Um, I'm not really sure that that is probably the best way to to interpret this you know if i can introduce you to the problems in 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 my own past um, what do we do with these people i've heard that we catch them and god cleans them which is a lovely fishing analogy right you catch them and i'll clean them Um, again that sort of presumes though that we have to be introducing people to god and without us they really wouldn't know anything well, I can tell you that I spent, and I've probably mentioned this before, two years of my high school career every Monday night doing something called Evangelism Explosion. Has anybody heard of this before? Just out of curiosity. Um, what we would do is we would go to laundromats because people can't leave their clothes. <laughs> you know, once they're washing the clothes, they're worried that other people might take them or throw them away. So they really are a captive audience. I mean, people have an amazing pain threshold when they're waiting on their clothes. You could also probably do this on black friday while you're in line um, so so we would go there and we would ask people these fundamental questions so that we could hook them for god we would say if you died today do you know for sure you'd go to heaven people would usually say i think so sure or, or maybe and then came the second one this is where we really set the hook let's pretend you did die today like on your way home from the laundromat like if you've got a huge five-car pile up and you all died it was important they could die then that helped them make the decision we wanted them to make right let's pretend you did die and god said why should i let you into heaven what would you say well you know i've tried to be a good person that's the wrong answer that's where we were ready to jump in right it's fishermen for jesus Uh, We were ready to hook them for God. So the right answer is, in case you're wondering, if you're ever doing laundry and somebody asks you, or yes, I'm going to heaven, (laughs) and I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior and asked him to forgive me all my sins. If you'll just say those things, the people will probably go away. Now, I want to warn you, if you say anything other than those things, you're there till the clothes are dry, okay? Which could be a long time. Now, I was very confident as a fisher of people that this was the right way to hook them for God. Like a hook, it makes a little bit of sense because, you know, the word we used for that was evangelism, which means telling people good news. I've mentioned this before. I'm not sure it's good news to tell somebody you are going to hell when you die, but you don't have to. I call that mixed news. <laughs> um, it initially is very bad news. It gets slightly better. <laughs> but it doesn't have to get better, you see. That's why the news is mixed. Um, it presumes that people don't know God at all unless they know exactly the language that I have. Jesus Christ, personal Savior, died for my sins on the cross. They don't have that language. They don't know God at all. They're like dumb Fish. I think the biggest problem is, does God use hooks? Hooks leave holes, right? They don't come out easily. They hurt. And do we have to trick people into faith by scaring the hell out of them? God, I hope not. I hope not. I wonder... If this bit about fishing for people isn't actually quite different from the idea about snaring and netting people, if it isn't different than thinking of people versus fish, I wonder if we aren't better served to think that we're just all fish. And this whole bit about faith and fishing for people is about. living our life in such a joyful and alluring way that people want to join the school of faith of course there are many reasons why fish swim in schools it's a pretty amazing thing to see right you've you've probably seen this on Discovery or Animal Planet that there's this body of fish that swim in synchronicity they make millions of adjustments every few seconds right because they're paying careful attention to one another and the fish do this of course because their strength in numbers they look much bigger to natural predators in a school they do this because it's much more hydrodynamic it introduces um, things like drafting the fish can rotate where they are in schools. I'm actually positive this is why we say since 1976 when we recite the Nicene Creed, we believe in one God, because a school of faith, somebody in the building hopefully does this week. I will tell you as your priest, I don't think I could say I to everything in the Creed every week. There are certain weeks where my belief is weak. But we do. And on those days, you carry your priest. Hopefully, there are days where I carry you in return. And this is why we swim as a school and not as individual people. We don't live and die on our own faith. We live and die together as a school. We give rest and respite. We carry one another's burdens. This is the goal of swimming in community, I think. We don't all have to look the same or even swim the same. Sometimes we get injured and that's exactly when the body protects us as fish. I think there's this bit about schools that we're called to really be evangelical, which is a bad word, I think, in the Episcopal Church, uh, mainly because of what it means in most other circles. It means hooking people for God and scaring the hell out of them. And, you know, I do think that's a bad word. I've got holes in my spiritual life from being hooked that way. Holes that continue to bleed. I mean, when I'm on an airplane and there's turbulence, I sometimes find myself thinking, I better get right with the Lord before I die or I could go to hell. And then I have to tell myself, I'm not really sure that God works that way. You know, I have to ease myself out. I think because we've been taught that evangelism means converting to somebody into the same cognitive category that's not bringing me any joy either. (laughs) and I think that's why we're afraid of that word as an Episcopal church and rightfully so but you know what the word means is bringing good news to people not mixed news bringing good news to people I wonder if that isn't what Jesus commissions Andrew to do I wonder if Andrew is able to bring Peter not because Andrew has special knowledge of a secret language, but because Andrew is able to say, brother, I have found something I've been looking for, and I didn't even know I was looking for it, and you should come and see it. I wonder if we could say that to people instead of, friend, I don't want you to go to hell. Learn these words, and you won't. That's basically like putting an X above your fireplace to keep witches out, don't you think? If we instead could say to the world, there is something different and life-giving and joyful in this way of swimming that I've found, in this school of fish that I have joined, I hope you have such a school to swim in. Wouldn't that be at least better news? (laughs) Of course, you know what it presumes is that our faith is giving us new life. If it isn't, we probably should change schools, don't you think? Isn't that the substance of our faith is that we have life and have it more abundantly instead of having a fear of hell and having it more repressively. Isn't it interesting that both of the scriptures say that the word is very close to us, that God's presence is in our hearts and in our mouths, even if we don't think we've heard it. Paul says we have heard it. It's not like there's people who follow Jesus and stupid fish who are absent from God's presence. There's a recognition that we're swimming in the ocean of God and that God is inviting us into currents that will enhance our living together, will enhance our individual swims as fish, but also the swim of the school. Doesn't the world need that? When you're honest with yourself don't you need that? I wonder if this isn't the call of St. Andrew to be fishers of people to deepen our faith journey not till it hurts but until it feels good to give gifts to the world And instead of saying, there's no gift too small to say, give to the world, there's no gift too big. I wonder if that isn't the call of St. Andrew. I wonder if that isn't why he's an effective evangelist. And for us, I think particularly in a country that is so mired in a misunderstanding of evangelism as technical speak, I wonder if evangelism doesn't look a little bit more like just identification and invitation. I think it's really tough to go to somebody in a line or at a restaurant and try to get them to convert to some faith statement in a moment as if that's all it took me. My faith has taken me 38 years to get where I am, not 38 seconds. I wonder, because in some ways we're prejudiced against evangelical speak, it makes us very slow to identify, but I wonder if we aren't missing part of what Andrew asked us to do in his legacy. there's two parts to this one is that our life is enhanced and then the other part is that we identify to people that we are people of faith enhancing other people's lives i think we do very well we give people bags who are hungry that have food in them and that is of course an extremely lovely thing to do that is what the bible has in mind when it uses words like salvation We give children backpacks and school supplies who don't have those things. That is what the Bible has in mind when it uses the word salvation. It is new life. Then I think comes the next part, which is for us to say, I am acting out salvation. I don't know if we should use that word because it scares people. (laughs) It's funny, right? Because that's a good word, but it's scary. I'm acting out salvation because I sense that God has a deep abiding love in you. And I just wanted you to know that. I wonder if people know that we're good people. I I think they do. But I wonder if people know that we're good and loving people because we sense that God loves us. I wonder if that's all it takes to be a proper evangelical, is to just say, you know, friend, I really love going to church. I really love God. I'm really trying to follow Jesus. Not every time we see them, you know? I think people, if people knew that we were people of faith, and if we were swimming in a way that was conducive to our joy and theirs, they'd know to ask us about it if it mattered. I wonder if that isn't hope for evangelism. You know? if we don't have any more abundant life nobody should be interested if we do and they know it has something to do with our faith then i think they can ask (laughs) i have an extreme advantage i want you to know because i often wear a uniform not everybody knows it's a uniform (laughs) i recently got a haircut and somebody said are you a lawyer No, but I'm married to one. That was really good. There was nowhere going from that. Somebody else asked me recently, mind you, I'm wearing my black shirt with the white collar. Somebody said, what kind of work do you do? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm a priest. Oh, you just never know with fashion these days. Uh, We've been wearing this stuff for like a thousand years, (laughs) so so it's a little confusing. But you know, um, I I, I get to wear that and people, for better or worse, for themselves, they get to associate me with like church and God. So I try not to wear the collar when I'm driving, actually. Um, (laughs) It snaps off, you know, it's not permanent. In some ways, I have the easy way and I have the responsibility of remembering that whatever I do, for better or worse, I do represent God in church. You know, I have this outward, invisible symbol of this inward reality, for better and for worse. Quite honestly, this is part of the reason much of the world does not care for the church is because of how we have represented it as people of the collar. You don't get the collar. I mean, most of you don't get it. There's a statement falsely attributed to St. Francis that says, preach the gospel, use words if you must, right? Francis never said that. I just want to make sure you know. <laughs> Did not say that. The goal of that statement is that the way we live is set apart from a way of living that is full of death. That makes sense. That whether it's the way we greet each other or treat our waiters and waitresses, whether it's choosing empathy instead of sympathy with our friends and family members, whether it's the way we spend our resources and care for people that we don't know, whether it's the language we use to describe people in politics, there should be something different about us. Otherwise, what's the point, right? I don't mean better like I'm better than you. The scripture says there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free. It's not about better. I just mean different in the sense that we're moving in God's currents. You ever swam against the current? It's tiring, let me tell you. I've done it. <laughs> no, I, I mean, literally, swimming. You know, I'm a swimmer. And swimming against the current, not fun, right? It's, just not, it's not good, right? Swimming with the current is pretty delightful. You feel fast and light and all of that. Life is good, right? Um, I think that's what God wants us to do. But I think that's only half of it because the world desperately wants to know if we are experiencing life where they can experience more life. And this is why Paul says, blessed are the feet, beautiful are the feet of the ones who bring the good news. We don't just bring it with what we do, we invite other people to swim with us and this is why there's that sign everywhere that we have to work hard on the sign says the episcopal church welcomes you you've seen it before it's a lovely sign except when you really think about it you're mostly welcome if you do what we do you are welcome to come here if you dress like we dress you are welcome to come here if you genuflect when we genuflect You are welcome to come here if you hold your hands like this when you do the Eucharist. If you do this business, your welcome's in jeopardy. (laughs) I've been to those churches, let me tell you. Now, I wonder if St. Andrew's isn't not inviting us to say instead, the Episcopal Church invites you. You are invited. You are invited to swim in God's currents, and we will learn from you too. You are invited to join us As imperfect people, as we are imperfect people, as we try to swim in God's currents. We invite you to come to the table that is God's, not to the table that is the church's. Isn't that the kind of good news that the world needs? Not that they're welcome, but that they're wanted. Isn't that what Andrew asks us to do? Not just to invite, but to actually want to be with the people that often don't even want to be with themselves. I think that's when we fish for people. Authentically, salvifically. And in that fishing is not just when they're transformed, into what God has in mind, that's when we are transformed to what God has in mind. So be good fishers of people. And let's pray the substance of our faith in the words of the not-seeing creed.